This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hi, I'm going to whisper some things to you now about crunch chocolate bars, because apparently this whispering thing is a thing that makes you feel things. It's saying something crunchy is coming in the candy wrapper language. Mm. Imagine your tongue hiking up those crispy, rocky ridges. Now, drum roll, please. Wow, that's good. Crunchy, munchy chocolate doesn't whisper. Turn up the fun with Crunch. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Hello and welcome to this special edition of Radio Astronomy from the makers of BBC Sky Night magazine. We're here at the Jodrell Bank to celebrate the Blue Dot Festival. I'm news editor Elizabeth Pearson. And I'm the magazine staff writer Ian Todd. Today, 50 years ago, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin set down on the surface of the moon ready to go for their space work on the 21st of July. That's right, and there's lots of kind of... uh moon and uh, Apollo related stuff uh, happening this year's festival for obvious reasons Um, so we've been chatting to a few of the people who've been uh, giving talks and lectures um, talking about kind of Cold War space race and and space junk and things like that. Um, Earlier today I spoke to Tim O'Brien who's one of the associate directors here at Jodrell Bank about uh, the cutting edge research that the observatory continues to do today, a bit about the history and a bit about the legacy of Apollo. So I am here at uh, Blue Dot 2019 with uh, Tim O'Brien, who's an associate director here at uh, Jodrell Bank Observatory. Thanks very much for joining me, Tim. No problem. Um, it, it definitely feels this year that Blue Dot uh, is, get, is, is a lot busier. It feels like it's getting bigger. Do you, do you think the, it is bigger. Do you think the word's spreading? Or? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you don't expect to immediately reach out to everybody who might be interested the first year you do it. So it's got to grow. You know, people got to hear about it. And we're certainly grown this year, so it's great. Yeah. I mean... Um, I think a lot of people who are coming to Blue Dot for the first time might not be necessarily aware of what Jodrell Bank is and the history and things like that, or even just what, what this amazing structure behind us is. So I was wondering mm. if you could talk a bit about 
about the observatory and a bit about the uh, Lovell telescope? Yeah, I mean, obviously the observatory is uh, well known for its radio astronomy work. So we so we look at radio waves coming from outer space um, with radio telescopes, and there's a there's a bunch of telescopes here. Um, but to be honest, probably most people's attention is on the big one. Um, so the Lovell telescope that's sitting there behind us now um, is when it was built in the 50s. It was the world's largest telescope. Uh, it's still the third largest telescope in the world, actually. So uh, yeah, cool. and and you know. Uh, it's important to say that it's in 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 uh, it's more powerful than it ever was, uh, because although the the mass of steelwork and the big paraboloidal reflecting ball is is, is pretty much the same, we've been able to upgrade all the back end electronics. We're constantly changing the computers at the back, so the bit that sort of catches the radio waves and focuses focuses them to the top of the tower in the middle, well, pretty much that stays the same. Um, but you can do so much clever stuff now at the back end that we never used to be able to. So. So it's still really right there at the cutting edge. Yeah, so what sort of um, things does radio astronomy enable us to see that, hmm. for example, optical light? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, when, when, they first, when we first started looking at the universe with radio waves, uh, we saw it, it looks completely different. We, you see a completely different view of the universe. You know, if you go out at night on a clear, clear night and you look up at the sky with your eyes, you see stars. You see the hot surfaces of stars, maybe like the sun, 6,000 degrees, and they glow in the visible. If you had radio dishes for eyes, you wouldn't see the stars. They're actually quite faint. Um, but you see something that looks like stars, sort of points of radio light scattered over the sky. Um, and those um, were originally they were called radio stars. We now know that they are the supermassive black holes at the hearts of distant galaxies. Um, and they generate a huge amount of radio emission that we see right the way across the universe. And then sort of arching across the sky uh, in the foreground, if you like, um, is the Milky Way. But again, instead of seeing the stars in the Milky Way, you see the stuff between the stars. You see radio waves coming from electrons that are spiraling around the magnetic field of the galaxy. Um, so it's just, you know, the modern, you know, astrophysics is, 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 uh, is really like a jigsaw, where the jigsaw pieces are the different views that you get at different parts of the spectrum. So you get your, you get your visible light view, you get your radio view, you get your X-ray view, you put together those pieces and then you make this complete picture of, of the universe. And one of the things that uh, British amateur astronomers often complain about is the horrendous UK weather and the, and the clouds, but th that isn't a problem for a, for a radio no, telescope, we, is it? No, not for us, certainly. We, we, we work at centimetre wavelengths. Um, so uh, in that case, they, those basically travel through the clouds. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. I mean, I know normally it's lovely and sunny at Jodrell Bank, but uh, it's a bit wet and grey at the moment. Um, and yeah, we can see right through them. If you go down to the shorter wavelengths, so if you get down to the millimetre wavelengths, then water vapour is a problem. And oh. so millimetre telescopes will always be at altitude. So they'll be, you know, on the top of a high mountain, much like optical telescopes are. But at centimetre waves, we're OK from here. You mentioned the uh, the weather, and it it has been quite 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 rainy this uh, year. I mean, yeah. previous years it's been absolutely yeah. amazing, and it's still it's still it's still uh, nice and warm. Mm. But yeah. it, it kind of brings me on to something that we were talking about yesterday. We were just kind of having a chat, having a few beers outside our tent, and we were wondering what what happens if the dish of the telescope fills up with rainwater? <laughs> um, it doesn't, sorry, luckily, it doesn't fill with rainwater. It does actually have drain pipes. So, so there are drainage holes that the water runs out of, basically. Um, the, 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 however, the problem is snow, because the snow doesn't run out like the water does do. Uh, so, it, so it builds up in the bowl, and then we actually tip the bowl over, and we make a little mini avalanche, um, and we tip this, so that's quite fun. 
Um, we a few years, it was 2011 maybe, it was a really cold winter um, and it snowed and it was so cold the snow froze to the surface of the dish so you couldn't actually easily tip it out. So we had to rent, rent in some uh, gas burners um, that we had to put underneath the surface of the telescope to warm the surface of the telescope a bit so we could then tip the snow out, so yeah. And like, like when you're looking at it, it looks like there are like elevator shafts and, the, and, the, and, the, yeah. and that you could actually get up to the top can, of the telescope. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's lifts that go up either tower. There's two towers, one either side of the ball, um, and there is a lift in each tower. Um, we have a green tower and red tower, which uh, you can only really tell that's the case when you're inside the floors painted green in one and red on the other, so you know which side of the telescope you're on. Uh, and then you can sort of go out along a walkway to the middle. Um, and there's a ladder that you can get up that gets into the main bowl of the telescope. But our, um, our engineers that work on the receivers, the receivers are, there, are at the top of a, a focus tower in the middle of the bowl, and that itself has its own lift. Um, that's a much more compact and cosy lift uh, that takes you to the top that you actually have to get out the roof of. Um, so that's quite a, a difficult procedure. So they have to be trained in um, rope access, you know, like, like professional climbing uh, people are trained so they can actually get to the focus. Um, as, we're, as we're recording this, obviously it's the 50th anniversary of mm. Apollo 11. Um, and there's quite a lot of stuff happening this weekend at the festival. Mm. I mean, what sort of things could, could people expect tonight? Oh, so um, so tonight we're um, we're doing uh, once it gets dark we're doing a, a, li a projection show on the telescope. So we like we we have a, a group of artists called Illuminos that have worked on a uh, an Apollo 50th anniversary themed presentation that, that combines archive audio and video and it and it sort of wraps around the whole of the telescope and tells the story of Apollo. Um, so that's one of the major major things we're doing. One of the things that's occupying my mind currently um, is the fact that I, I, we, we arrange, we're going to do a moon bounce. So we're going to work with colleagues in the Netherlands with a telescope at Dwingelo, uh, which has a transmitter, and we're going to send uh, messages uh, and audio of various types and even some images, actually, uh, uh, send them live from here to Netherlands where they get turned into a radio signal transmitted to the moon, bounced off the moon's surface and then we catch the echo as it returns with our other big telescope here, the Mark II and we turn them back into audio or images and we'll do that in real time the, re the round trip travel time is about 3 seconds um, so you get the echo back quite rapidly because it all travels at the speed of light um, but yeah, it's uh, in, in principle, it's easy to do, but in practice, it's a bit technically demanding. So we'll see. It's a bit of a laugh. It's a bit of an experiment, and we like having a, a bit of fun here at Blue Dot. Uh, obviously, the uh, Lovell Telescope was named after Bernard Lovell. Hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm aware that kind of towards the end of his life, he was asked about Apollo, and he was, he was slightly ambivalent, wasn't he? I mean, it, it was kind of the fact that he kind of saw it as just a kind of almost well, like, like kind of political prowess as opposed to actual science. Like, as, but, as, men, but mainly that's true, right? Yeah. <laughs> so he was right. <laughs> so, there, so you know, the, the, you know, the reason that it happened was a political competition between communism and capitalism, effectively, between the USA and the Soviet Union. That's what led, that's why so much money was invested into it. Um, and uh, having said that, of course, the scientists were very keen to get some science out of it. And of course, we have we have had masses of science out of the Apollo program and continue to do so. The lunar rocks that were brought back are still being analysed today. Um, so um, so it's, it's not that it was 
not science at all, but the reason it happened was a political reason. That's why they decided to put so much money and so much effort into it, um, in fact. And, and it's also the reason why it really uh, faded away after 1972, because once the race had been won, that political impetus sort of was not ascent, you know, was not there anymore, really. Yeah. So although the scientists might have quite liked to go going back, uh, they couldn't really persuade the governments to keep putting the money in. Um, it's all going to change. Um, you know, it's, we're getting... Um, it's all getting busy again. The moon's in the news again, and I'm sure we'll be uh, we'll be back again with people uh, very soon. Almost well by the end of the 2020s, certainly, possibly earlier. Um, but I think I think by the end of the decade. I mean, I sound like JFK now, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah. Um, and you shouldn't forget that um, you know we did. Although we haven't sent humans to the moon. We've continued to explore the solar system with robotic spacecraft, of course, ever since. So we've, we've done huge amounts of science. It's just that we haven't put people beyond low Earth orbit. Yeah. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And, and just looking to the future, I mean, Georgia uh, Bank is the headquarters of a, of a kind of cutting-edge new telescope that's kind mm. of spanning continents, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we just opened the global headquarters just uh, just last week, actually, uh, for the Square Kilometre Array, uh, which is going to be built in South Africa and Australia. Um, so many dishes in South Africa, many other antennas, aerials in, in Australia, um, and uh, a global headquarters here. Uh, so that'll be operating in, it'll take a while to get that up and running. It'll be another 10 years before that's running. Um, but there are precursors uh, for those telescopes already operating now in Australia and South Africa, Meerkat in South Africa, uh, and the Murchison Widefield Array in, in Australia, that are producing amazing science. And combine that with what we're doing already here with the E-Merlin Array in the UK and the European VLBI network, um, there's, a, there's a lot going on in, in radio astronomy. And I think our future here at Jodrell Bank is secure, I think, for at least the next 50 years. Brilliant. Well, Tim, thanks very much for speaking to me today. No problem. Yeah, so I'm, I'm here with Chloe Penman, who is uh, a documentary filmmaker. Uh, hi, Chloe. Thanks very much for, for speaking to me. Hello. How are you? Yeah, Grant. And um, we've just watched your uh, film, uh, How Britain Won the Space Race, which is about, it's, it's really about uh, the story of George Bank, I suppose, isn't it? And, and how it kind of got wrapped up in Cold War politics. How, how, did you, how did you kind of come to this story? Well, it was a kind of gift, really. It was, um, I, I came to Jodrell Bank in 2014 uh, with the BBC. We were making a documentary about the history of science fiction. And um, 
I'd never, I'm from the West Country, I live in Bristol. Um, I'm, I've never really spent much time in Manchester or the surrounding area. So while you guys, you know, Jodrell Bank sort of like ingrained into your memory from like a child, like I'd never heard of it or even seen the telescope before. So I kind of arrived and it was like turning up to the set of some 1950s B-movie science fiction film and like, the way the control centre still looks like a kind of 1950... It's got all the kind of original fixtures and fittings. And as a massive science fiction nerd myself, I just it looked like something from Quatermass in the pit or something. And um, I, just, I just thought, wow, what is this place? It's mental, it's amazing. And not only did it have this, you know, kind of heritage um, appeal, it also was still at the cutting edge of, of science. And so... You know, I found the whole place intriguing. But then uh, I met Tim and Teresa, and uh, that's when it kind of got really interesting because I got, then got the full story about the man behind this sort of space-age place. And it really was just an amazing human story. This guy, Bernard Lovell, turning up in a field after the Second World War with surplus sort of radar equipment and kind of inventing a new science. And not only inventing a new science, like erecting at the time, what was the biggest radio telescope in the world, and I think even today is still the third biggest, and kind of nearly bankrupting himself in the process. I mean, it was just a, a ripping yarn. It was just a great story. And, um, and, and Tim and Teresa not only had this sort of story to tell, they had, it was almost like the, an actual treasure trove, like an overflowing cupboard of like unseen archive photographs, 16 millimeter film, 88 millimeter film. So as like a kind of budding filmmaker, that was it was like hitting jackpot. Um, uh, so I just felt like it was really important to get people to see this archive, and also I thought it was a really important story to tell. And as obviously this year it's got UNESCO World Heritage status, it feels continuing. It continues to be a really important story for us to tell ourselves about Lovell and his telescope. Yeah, I mean, after the film, we were kind of having one of those, you know, post post film chats and, and talking about it, and we just um, just love how how the story is kind of all it's wrapped up in the kind of Cold War politics of the time. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of uh, it's kind of a bit crazy, really, how it all happened. I know. I mean, it's this one place that obviously is dedicated to pure science and I think somewhere in the film I say something along the lines of you know it keeps generating stories like it's not just generating like data or evidence like this place is like a storytelling machine and it, and and all the almost all the key moments in the post-war period in terms of science and um, you know global politics Jodrell Bank sort of is involved in it in some way and it's just kind of one of those amazing places like kind of Venn, Venn diagram like everything always links back there's all Jodrell Bank's always kind of playing a role in these really important moments and and that's why I think it's such an enduring cultural icon as well as a kind of scientific one too and I think that's why it has literally inspired storytellers <laughs> you know not just me many many others yeah so I mean I mean I suppose one of the ways I kind of got caught up in the in the cold wars and, and the space race really which is which is what the the uh, film is about is was tracking the uh, rocket that launched Sputnik do you like do you do you think it's kind of a like? Do you think it's kind of a bit of a shame that um, it, it did kind of get caught up in politics? You know, because it, it was it was built to basically you know to look at the universe and, and, and discover how the universe was created. Yeah, I mean that's a really interesting question. I think it's something that Bernard Lovell himself struggled with, and um, I think there's two sides to that coin. I mean, obviously, in the building of the telescope, Bernard Lovell incurred huge debt. I mean, he was hauled across the coals by the Public Accounts Committee. That's like having you know, 
25 MPs stand in front of you telling you you're making a huge mistake with public funds. Um, and the key to unlocking the huge debt and shame that he'd incurred by building this, at the time, was a huge white elephant. It was like the Millennium Dome of the post-war period. Um, I think showing that it had a purpose uh, that could be outside of its original scientific, you know, remit, but it had a purpose nonetheless. And actually tracking these intercontinental ballistic missiles was really, really important, especially during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So I don't think Lovell relished it being used by the military and, and the state, but actually, on, if, if it hadn't been used in that way, he it might never have been finished and he would have, could have, very realistically become bankrupt and sacked by the university. So, you know, swings and roundabouts. <laughs> um, you also have quite a lot of uh, t talking head segments from some of the residents who, who live yeah, in Cheshire. Yeah. I mean, so did, did you kind of speak to them? And how, how do you think the kind of local people view the uh, the level telescope and uh, Dodgewell Bank? Yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, what I'm really interested in as a filmmaker, and I make documentaries primarily about social histories. So that's how I got, you know, I'm not a scientist. I'm a filmmaker who's interested in people and social history in Britain and Time Shift, the, the strand that this was for, which was aired on, it's actually on iPlayer at the moment as well if people want to watch it, um, is really about how, you know, normal people respond to huge moments in history or things and actually so for me getting um you know testimony from someone like margaret who is amazing and i mean she was in her 90s when we interviewed her um i think it just makes it again like these things feel so remote and especially science and astrophysics like you, you know i'm not a scientist and these things can feel really rarefied and that they're not about us and they don't tell us about who we are as a society and as people and i think you know above all the Lovell Telescope isn't just an instrument for, you know, the exploration of the universe. It's an important cultural landmark that gives people a sense of place, a sense of heritage. Um, and those are all the reasons why it's got UNESCO World Heritage status today. And that's why it's really important to hear from people like Margaret. And the film ends with Margaret, you know, talking about how you only have to say Jodrell Bank and people know immediately where that is. And if it weren't for this place, you know, this would just be another field in Cheshire and... It's put, it's put Cheshire on the map, it's put Manchester on the map. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually did find it quite touching, and I, uh, films like that, and when you kind of see the uh, desire for knowledge and then things like that, it, it, it almost kind of makes me well up. Did, 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 did you kind of get that when you were, like, like the kind of like the uh, noble intentions of Bernard Lovell, just kind of setting up radio antenna in a, in a Cheshire field to, to look at the stars? Yeah, there's something like really, I mean, he's just the, the kind of quintessential like plucky Brit who just kind of gets on with stuff and like rolls his sleeves up. And I love all the archive of like the men in the fields wearing their suits, literally with their shirts rolled up, kind of like sticking metal into the ground. And there's like a little picture of, Brian Lovell as a boy kind of like running around in a trench somewhere and there's just something really there's the kind of make do and mend kind of attitude of that sort of generation which is really really inspiring um, and I think we should look back to those people uh, as we do our own stuff now and um, and actually what was really nice I didn't realise but in the, in the back of the room during the film there was four generations of Lovell's family who'd all seen the film I think they'd seen it before on telly but they I'd never met them before so it was like 
you know, one of them, I think Bernard's granddaughter came up to me at the end and said that, you know, I really welled up during, you know, watching it. Because again, like, you think of these things as almost inhuman, like this sort of scientific endeavour, but actually what's behind this place and what's so special about Jodrell Bank is the human story behind it. And, and Bernard Lovell is a really inspiring figure and sort of stands for a generation of people that were hugely inspiring. Definitely. Well, uh, thanks for inviting us to come and see the film. Uh, and thanks for speaking to us today, Chloe. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure. That's all right. It was really fun. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm talking to Dr. Space Junk, otherwise known as Alice Gorman from Flinders University in Adelaide. And she is a space archaeologist. That's a fantastic title. What actually is a space archaeologist? So I'm an archaeologist and I use archaeological methods and theories to apply to the objects of the space age. So everything that humans have sent out beyond the Earth. So this includes space junk in Earth orbit, planetary landing sites, deep space probes. But I do work on Earth too occasionally. So um, rocket launch sites, tracking stations, um, things like that as well. Um, and in your talk, you imagined what it would be like to be uh, an, an alien explorer coming across our solar system. So what do you think aliens would make of our solar system? I think they'd find it intriguing. I think they would look at our obsession with planets with solid surfaces and think that that was ridiculous. They'd wonder why we're not out in the, the middle and outer solar system more. So they'd say, where are all the orbital habitats? So in the future scenario, I imagine, there's no space stations in Earth orbit. They've all, you know, we've lost the capacity to sustain life in Earth orbit long ago. But there's, there's no other space stations in the rest of the solar system either. So, you know, you don't have to, don't have to build a settlement on the surface of a planet. We could just send out orbital habitats and do all of our studies of the rest of the solar system like that. So I think, I think alien archaeologists would be saying, hey, look, what a depauperate suite of space technologies they have. Where's all the other stuff? And how long would aliens have to, to come and sort of investigate our, our solar system before all traces of humanity was gone? It's going to vary a lot planet to planet. So some, some planets and moons have, you know, far more... Um, corrosive or complicated environments than some. So the moon's pretty good, no atmosphere, no water, very little seismic activity. Venus isn't bad. So sure, we've got clouds of sulfuric acid and there's sulfuric acid rain, but it doesn't actually reach the ground. It's evaporated before the ground. No water, um, some seismic activity. So stuff on the surface there could likely survive for some thousands of years, maybe even longer. On some of the moons, yeah, that stuff might be around for a while as well. I think Mars is looking not so great, just because it's very dynamic. We've got all these sandstorms. So I think that's going to wear away the material record. There's lots of stuff in orbit around different moons and planets as well. But those orbiters, when they run out of fuel, if, depending on what their orbit is, they're going to fall onto the surface too. So I think it's going to be a bit of a mixed bag. So if we don't send any more missions out into the solar system in the near future, probably the moon is going to be the place where the archaeological evidence of our space age will be the best preserved. And there is 
so much stuff that we've we've sent out over the the, the last couple of decades. Um, do you think that that's a problem with how much stuff we're leaving behind? I kind of don't because, well, um, you know, I like to think I'm as environmentally committed as the next person. That is literally what archaeologists do. We study junk people leave behind. So um, I want there to be stuff that is a record for us. And in fact, there's some interesting political dimensions to this. So they may be relevant in the near future, maybe less so in the far future. Let's just say there's a situation where one nation or one corporation is attempting to gain privileged access to the resources of some planet. This is the sort of thing that happens on Earth. They might go to the archaeological sites of another company or another nation and destroy them. Then they'll say, well, you aren't here. You have no right to use this resource. You say you're here, but where's the evidence? Where is it? Oh, you know, we just... So this happens on Earth. People use cultural heritage as political weapons. So it's not impossible this will happen in space as well. And this very stuff that we're thinking of, just as junk, is actually going to be used to establish evidence that there was a greater diversity of space players than we might see in the future when some private corporations come to dominate space. So heritage is important. And we're actually standing under the shadow of um, the Lovell Telescope, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Monument. do you think is being enough to being done to protect places like the Apollo landing sites, the rovers, even things like the, the, the New Horizons probe and the Voyager 2 probe? Well, we're fortunate with things further out in the solar system, the likelihood of humans getting there anytime soon is, you know, it won't be soon, it'll be a long, long time. And then we'd have to find them. That's the the other thing. So they're probably safe. They're just protected by distance. What aliens will do if they find them, we can't control that. In terms of the inner solar system, look, you know, people are making a big fuss. I've heard the Director General of the European Space Agency say, oh, we can't heritage list everything on the moon. You wouldn't be able to go anywhere. And look, frankly, that's an ill-informed view. There's so few sites on the moon at this point in time. And there's a lot of moon. It's not a small place. So there is no reason right now why we have to touch or disturb anything. Nobody loses if we just leave those places alone. So it's going to be a matter of educating the space community that heritage is not the enemy. I mean, it's a very common attitude on Earth, um, but we don't need to import. As with many earthly attitudes, you don't need to import them into space as well. So the short answer to that is no, not enough is being done, but I'm available for consultation for a certain fee. (laughs) Um, And... There is also a huge variety of stuff that's been left out there. Is What's your sort of favourite or most unusual artefact that's been left behind by humanity? That really, it's such a hard question to answer. It, this is a cliche, but I'm very, very fond of Voyager 2. So people make, there were two Voyagers launched in 1977. Voyager 1 got outside the solar system first, and it's the one people tend to make a fuss about. I'm very fond of Voyager 2 because it only left the solar system in the last year. So it's, it's you know, someone had already done it, people got less, less excited about it. But just like Voyager 1, it carries a golden record, so the famous golden records. On the golden records, there are two pieces of Aboriginal music. And uh, in a little piece of research I did some time ago, I found out who the musicians were. Their names were Jara, Mudpo and Wally Paru. And it just makes me feel, I don't know, it makes me feel 
strongly to think that there is Aboriginal culture that far out in the solar system. So that's Voyager 2 and the Golden Records are my favourite space artefact. I, I do think it is important with stuff like that that it's it's not just the major space-faring nations that are out there. The, the entire of humanity is represented out in space. Um, now, looking a bit closer to Earth, there is a bit of a problem with some of the stuff that we've been left behind, particularly uh, space junk in, in low Earth orbit. Um, do you think that that's going to be a problem that we're going to have to really start considering over the next couple of years? Yeah, and people have been saying this for maybe... I think the first consideration that this stuff would be both junk and problematic is in the late 1970s. So it's not like this is a new problem, but, you know, people keep just setting it to one side, putting their head in the sand. It requires international cooperation. It also requires... We've had a few instances of particular nations deciding to test their ground-based weaponry on stuff in Earth orbit, even though they know it's going to create a massive new amount of space debris. So we need to stop that from happening. We probably need to get some... You know, Elon Musk could, instead of sending thousands of satellites up to give people internet they didn't necessarily ask for, he could put his resources into finding active solutions for, for removing some of this debris. The technology we have to do this so far is rudimentary. There have been a couple of successful tests. People keep talking about it. Nothing's happening. So it is a problem. It is going to have to be resolved probably um, with some kind of international agreement, I would say, in the next decade, or we are not in a good situation. Well, thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to talk to us, Alice. An absolute pleasure. Thank you. So that's it for another episode of Radio Astronomy and indeed another, another year at Blue Dot Festival. I just want to say thanks to the uh, festival organisers and indeed the staff here at Jodrell Bank for having us for another year. Um, if you've been interested and inspired by uh, our discussions about Apollo 11, you can find out more about the space race and indeed the future of lunar exploration in our August issue. But from me, Inez, that's it for another year. Um, thanks very much for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or simply head to iTunes.